the opposition smartly used those circumstances to kind of put aside some of the infighting, put aside some of the identity politics stuff and create some pretty, I think, attractive messaging for a lot of people. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Turkey holds national elections on May 14th. And for the first time in 20 years, President Erdogan is facing a serious challenge at the ballot box. The opposition has unified behind candidate Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, a 74-year-old career politician whose low-key demeanor is a stark contrast to President Erdogan's bombastic charisma. As my guest today, Dr. Liesel Hintz, explains, Turkey's struggling economy and the fallout from the earthquakes earlier this year are reshaping the political landscape. Kılıç Daroğlu has a decent shot of unseating Erdogan, who was first elected in 2003. Dr. Liesel Hintz is an assistant professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. We kick off discussing some of the domestic political dynamics driving this election. We then have a discussion about the foreign policy implications of Turkey's national elections. This includes Turkey's relationship to NATO, its position on Russia and Ukraine, and regional dynamics in the Middle East. This conversation will help you better understand who Kılıç Daroğlu is and, no matter the outcome of this election, how Turkey's foreign policy may change in the coming years. Now here is my conversation with Dr. Liesel Hintz of Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. So it would seem that Kamal Kilicharulu is posing the most serious challenge to Erdogan's hold in power in decades. Who is he and what do listeners need to know about him? I mean, I would say that there have been numerous challenges to Erdogan's hold on power. You had, you know, the Gezi Park protests in 2013. You had the coup attempt in 2016. But in terms of at the ballot box through elections, the head of the Republican People's Party, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, is certainly, I would say, posing the biggest threat 
And I think that Erdogan and his Justice and Development Party, the AKP, are really trying to use all of the tools in their toolkit to try to make sure that he doesn't succeed in that endeavor. So Kılıç has been the head of the Republican People's Party for quite a while. He's been challenged a couple times internally. He's been criticized quite a lot on his policies. He's not considered super charismatic. I would say a couple of months ago, I think when he was selected as the unity candidate among six parties, or the table of six, as they're called, these opposition parties that have come together, I think that there was a lot of criticism that he's not the person to beat out of the one. He wasn't polling as high as some of the popular CHP, again, that's the Republican People's Party, mayors were, like the mayor of Istanbul, the mayor of Ankara, they were polling higher than Kılıç He went on a foreign trip, a couple foreign trips, and it, it didn't seem as though he was really connecting with audiences or wasn't really able to be very inspiring in his messaging. But I think that has really turned around in the aftermath of the earthquakes. Again, Kalitsdorol was selected. There was a very contentious process. We saw one of the leaders of the opposition parties defect from the coalition. She came back rather quickly, but it was not smooth sailing by any means in terms of his nomination as the unity candidate. But since the election, he's been able to achieve some things that I think people didn't expect. And one is to sort of find some way to deal with some of the identity politics that the AKP, the ruling party, has been trying to use to split the opposition. And on that, I mean the Kurdish issue. I mean the fact that Kılıç is an Alevi and the fact that he comes from Darsim. He's a Kurdish Alevi from Darsim, which was a site of attacks against Alevis in the past, because he has this identity and because it has historically been a stigmatized identity, people don't often talk about the fact that they're Alibi and there are different definitions of what that is. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, yeah. So I've actually done quite a lot of research on Aliviism and there's different definitions by Alibis themselves. Some would say that they are sort of a break off sect of Shia Islam They worship Ali. They don't fast during Ramadan. So they're not Sunni Muslims. Others would say that they're actually not necessarily really Muslims at all, that it's more of a spiritual identity. Alevis tend to be quite leftist, quite progressive. Women and men worship together. And then there will be those who say that it's not really a religion at all. It's much more of a cultural identity. One thing that I think is worth noting is that If you're born as an Alevi or you're coming from a region like Darsim, that is an identity that really sticks and, again, has been historically stigmatized. Alevis have been slaughtered under the Ottoman Empire. There was an incident of sort of a lynching, a burning to death of Alevi poets and intellectuals in a hotel when they were gathering for a cultural gathering. And so for Kılıç to not only come from that identity group, but... Last week, in response to the AKP's efforts to kind of tarnish him as not a good Muslim, oh, you stepped on a prayer rug with your shoes on, you're not one of us, you don't follow and respect our traditions, we don't want you as leader, he does this video where he just very plainly and genuinely and authentically says, I'm an Alevi and I'm a Muslim and I have my own traditions and and I'm part of a group. But, you know, we should not succumb to the government's efforts to try to divide us. Let's unite, especially the youth. Let's get together and quit this identity politics stuff and really focus on more tangible issues. So all that is to say, 
He's someone who had, I think, a lot of strikes against him, but he's been able in the wake of the earthquakes to be a very stoic figure, a very uniting, calming, reassuring figure who refuses to be defeated by identity politics and has really struck the right tone in his messaging. Very authentic, genuine, not the firebrand populist stuff that you get from Erdogan. But after 21 years of that, I think people are tired of it. I think a lot of people are tired of it. So I think he's really managing to strike a lot of the right notes in the last few months. So is it your view that like the epic disaster of the earthquakes just sort of changed Turkish popular perceptions of what they wanted in a leader and this kind of more stoic, more boring guy, to be honest, is someone that they might be looking towards in the wake of that disaster more so than Erdogan or else how did that earthquake change electoral dynamics? I think it changed it in a number of ways. I think first we have to look at what it did to the AKP. You know, we'd already seen an economic crisis. We'd already seen the AKP weakened in its ability to use its media machine to spin, you know, the idea that there's not massive inflation and massive unemployment and university students can't find jobs and and all of these things. And, And rather you know, sending out messaging that Turkey is growing and, you know, we're going to engage in some populist financial handouts and kind of solve things that way. So, I mean, you can use the media to do that for a while. And there, the political economy of the media means that they have the ability to do so. You have all of these private holding companies that own private television stations, but also have banking interests and mining interests and construction interests. That means that they are very closely tied to the government and show pro-AKP coverage in order to be able to get those, you know, low interest loans and get the tender on the big construction project and so forth. And, which is really, really relevant to the earthquakes, look the other way when it comes to safety standards. And what happened with the earthquakes is that not only had you had this failure of governance with the economic crisis and and the government's mismanagement of the economy that exacerbated that crisis. But you also had this clear, unconcealable failure to protect people, not only to just not respond, that's a whole other question of, you know, failure and disaster response. But the fact that the AKP fueled its political popularity on the back of this economic growth that was really, really heavily invested in construction. And that those construction projects were carried out in a lot of cases without proper labor safety standards. There were buildings that were built on areas where they were not supposed to have been. And we learned that after the 1999 earthquake. And there was a lot of measures that were meant to be taken, but were not implemented. And there were amnesty laws that were passed that meant that people could keep their buildings that were not up to code and just pay for it. So I think the absolute devastation, the grief, the frustration, the failure to respond, the tone Erdogan struck of, oh, if you're criticizing us, we're going to come after you, right? And then this crony capitalism that allowed these buildings to collapse that shouldn't have collapsed. I think all of that really shifted opinions of the AKP for a lot of people, not for everybody, There wasn't the huge drop in the poll numbers that we saw or thought we were going to see, but there's some. And then the other side is the opposition. 
And I think they have almost taken a card from Erdogan, who's a master of trading crisis into opportunity. We saw that with the coup attempt. We saw that with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And coming together, uniting, figuring out a way to kind of get over the Kurdish issue, you know, through some, okay, we're, some of us are going to talk about it. Some of us aren't. Um, We're going to try to convince the People's Democratic Party, that's the pro-Kurdish party, not to run their own candidate. So again, this kind of uniting message, but then really coming together with this narrative of, we're not going to let them continue to run this country into the ground. And we're going to find a way to build back and we're going to protect people in doing so. And we're going to create opportunities for youth. And there are 7 million people in Turkey who are voting for the first time who've grown up with nothing but Erdogan and the AKP. So that vote is a really important vote to get. So I think the earthquakes further weakened and further destabilized the AKP's ability to kind of continue this narrative that we're growing and we're good and things are going to be fine and provided an opportunity and not just an opportunity, but that the opposition smartly used those circumstances to kind of put aside some of the infighting, put aside some of the identity politics stuff and create some pretty, I think, attractive messaging for a lot of people. Now, there's still a couple of candidates. I mean, it's not just two parties that we're talking about, but I think that that, you know, table of six that has since been able to attract a few other smaller opposition parties. And again, as I said, with the pro-Kurdish party to convince them or to sort of come to an agreement that they would not run their own candidate, I think is, is, is showing some skill on their part that I think is attractive to a lot of people. So I do want to discuss with you the foreign policy implications of this election. But before we get there. I do also want to ask you about the role that runaway inflation is playing in this election. Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say that in Turkey, like most democracies, you know, foreign policy is not the issue that gets people out to the polls, but it's it's kind of kitchen table issues. And, you know, inflation in Turkey has been absolutely astonishing and, and runaway. And the government's response to it has been like the inverse of what macroeconomics 101 teaches. Rather than raising interest rates, Erdogan has sort of imposed his view that lowering interest rates in the face of surging inflation is the way to go. And that seems not to be panning out. What's your expectation of how inflation may influence voters' preferences? So, yeah, that goes back a little bit to the economic crisis that I was talking about earlier and the fact that you can spin a narrative on television as much as you want. But when you can't buy onions and tomatoes and, you know, milk and bread at the grocery store because inflation is so rampant, then I think you have a very serious problem that people are confronting on a daily basis. And that's very much what we've been seeing in you know some of the kind of on the street reporting that is trying to provide an alternative narrative to the pro government messaging and so i think the opposition has smartly picked up on that as well um you know you've got ads saying oh you know unhappy with the price of cheese at the market well thank erdogan for that right so they're honing in on the fact that exactly as you said like quite literally kitchen table issues not being able to put food on the table issues And inflation has been a problem for years. And as you said, the central bank keeping the interest rates low not only is a sign of mismanagement of the economy, but it's a sign of authoritarian institutional capture in the sense that the central bank doesn't have autonomy, in the sense that if the 
National Statistics Institute releases a particular number on inflation and Erdogan doesn't like it, well, then someone in the leadership position is going to be gone the next day and someone else is going to come in. So I think the sort of institutional control, the super highly consolidated executive presidency that puts so much of power in Erdogan's hands means that the central bank can't function on its own. It also means the Supreme Electoral Council can't function on its own, which is something that I think is going to be of immense importance on election day and certainly was in the 2018 and 2019 elections. But, you know, in terms of investor confidence and attracting the kinds of financial flows that you would want, that's not a place where people want to necessarily be investing if you don't have good governance, if you don't have autonomy of institutions. You know, the whole point of the low interest rates is to fuel growth and, and exports, right? But, you know, that comes with this huge, huge problem of inflation. And you sort of also have this dynamic whereby you have a loss of investor confidence, you have a loss of partnerships, you have a loss of Turkey's kind of reputation in terms of managing a concern with labor safety standards. So all kinds of factors that go into, I think, why inflation is going to play a big role in the elections. I think it would have anyway without the earthquakes. But I think that the earthquakes really kind of threw into perspective the ways in which that hyper authoritarian consolidation, like the fact that the, you know, disaster and emergency management is housed within the presidency. The fact that they weren't really able to respond quickly because there was such kind of a chokehold on dissemination of information and everything was really in Erdogan's hands. So I do want to ask you about the foreign policy implications of this election. And I suppose there are two ways of asking or attacking this question. The first is, how do you suspect that Kilic Durulu would differ from Erdogan? And also, how do you suspect that if Erdogan wins a post-election, Erdogan's foreign policy priorities may be different from what they have been thus far? So on that first question, what do we know about Kilic Durulu's foreign policy preferences and how they might differ from those of Erdogan? Yeah. And before we even sort of ask whether it's Kulitsurulu or whether it's Erdogan, we have to think about what winning the election means. And that doesn't mean necessarily getting 50% of the vote. We have to recognize that these are, they're certainly not fair elections in the sense that the playing field is tipped super heavily towards the government, but there's ways in which they might not be free either. And there's ways in which, again, with that connection of the government or of the ruling party to the Supreme Electoral Council, that they may be able to sort of call this in their favor. And that's something that I really worry about, especially if you get people protesting in the street. And then how does the government respond? So just kind of keeping that in mind, I think is really important. So do you think this will be a free and fair election? It sounds like not. Oh, absolutely not. No, there's zero question. There's zero question that it can be fair. The idea of fair is that Opposition parties, it has lots of meanings, but that opposition parties have equal access to be able to say compete, you know, to have airtime, right, to be able to get some kind of airplay for their messaging, that you don't have political opponents in jail, you don't have journalists who report or provide critical reporting in jail. So that all means that this is not a fair election. And we haven't had fair elections in Turkey since at least 2015. The ideas of an election being free means that people can vote, you know, they can cast their ballot freely for the candidate that they want without any kind of intimidation or coercion. 
and that that ballot is then counted for the candidate for whom they cast it. And I think that's also being called into question as well. Um, we've had electoral violence in the Kurdish region in the past. We've had when the 2018 election was held under a state of emergency, that was the general and the presidential election. You had ballot boxes moved at the last minute. You know, it's tough to rig an election when you have election observers and you have a competitive authoritarian system in which it's relatively easy to rig an election by like, you know, stealing two or three points. It's very difficult to steal seven or eight points. And so I think the best thing that those who want to ensure that the elections are as fair as possible, recognizing that they can't be 100 percent fair, is to try to have as many electoral observers on the ground. I know the OECD is deploying. Um, I know opposition parties are also going to be engaging that that they stay by the ballot boxes, that they don't go home just because the AKP calls a victory early in the evening based on unofficial results, which is what they did in the 2018 elections. And then the opposition candidate kind of disappeared, almost literally. So I think that there's concern about the integrity of the elections. And I think domestic and international observers being as vigilant as possible is going to be really, really important in that subject. That's really helpful. Thank you. I actually had that written down on my list of questions, and uh, I'm glad <laughs> that you you got into it. And on foreign policy, what do we know about Kilich Dorlu? So, I mean, there are some issues on which I don't think we would see a whole lot of change. And I think Russia is one of them. In the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Erdogan kind of seized this moment to be a mediator between Russia and Ukraine. And that means not having to give up selling drones to Ukraine. And it means not having to give up energy partnership with Russia. And then also being able to broker something like a green deal, which makes you look really important in the international community's eyes. Or, you know, being able to object to Sweden and Finland's NATO membership kind of using their institutional position to do so and essentially becoming an international actor that really needs to be reckoned with. And so I don't think that I see a big switch with Kalitsarbolu on Russia. It could be swayed in other directions because I do think that the relationship with the U.S. would probably improve a little bit, not a whole lot. I think that Turkey has grievances with the U.S. that are not ubiquitous, but that are common across a lot of the opposition parties. And those include the U.S.'s arming of the Syrian Kurdish People's Protection Units in the fight against ISIS. It is a PKK offshoot, an offshoot of the Kurdistan Workers Party. And so most of Turkey sees that as a NATO ally arming a terrorist group against another NATO ally. So that's a big stumbling block. On that question, which is intricately linked to Erdogan's opposition of Sweden joining NATO. Do you see Kilistorolu also insisting on blocking Sweden's accession to NATO for similar reasons? Or is there at all like a softer or more nuanced stance that he takes that might permit Sweden's joining of NATO? I would expect to see Sweden's joining of NATO irrespective of who stays in power. I think Erdogan's been holding out on that because it provides him with the opportunity of possibly being able to rally a little bit of a nationalist vote, possibly should the opportunity arise, which it's looking more and more like it won't. But several months ago, Turkey was talking about another ground incursion in northern Syria and continuing to be able to rhetorically entrap 
international actors into saying that, yes, these Kurdish actors are terrorists provides more legitimacy for that kind of a ground incursion. It looks less likely that that's going to happen now, but one never knows. Things can change very quickly. So I would expect to see that either Kilic Sarolo or Erdogan would, would be pretty okay with Sweden's membership post-election. I think that in the run-up to the election, Erdogan is kind of trying to hold all the cards in his hands that he can and not give anything away. But I don't see that he would have a lot of incentive to continue and to insist on that post-election. So it's interesting to me that post-election Erdogan or a President Kilic Sarolu to your view, wouldn't have like a fundamentally different relationship with the United States or the West. I mean, it seems at least, you know, Erdogan has been at profound loggerheads with, you know, the Biden administration yeah. in particular. But you're saying Kilish Jarulu probably wouldn't be too much different? So, so the differences would be personality and institutionalization of foreign policy. So those those sound like they contradict each other. But by what I mean by that is that you'd have a much less bellicose, aggressive rally around the flag. You know, we need to kind of assert our sovereignty at all costs. And the U.S. hates Muslims. And so for that, I mean, I'm being a little bit flippant here, but there's a whole lot of different ways in which Erdogan's narrative can spin the U.S. as undermining Turkey's interests. So I think the personalities will be different. I think Lichterola would be more amenable to particular forms of discussion and, again, wouldn't have that bellicose personality. And I do think you would see a reinstitutionalization of foreign policy. And by that, I mean a strengthening of the foreign ministry. Under Erdogan, you've had that foreign ministry gutted in a lot of ways, and you've had institutional bureaucrats replaced with relatively inexperienced lackeys. I know that affected U.S.-American relations when it was Sardar Kulic, who was the ambassador at the time. So I think that the sort of professionalization of the foreign ministry will shape foreign policy in general and particularly when it comes to the United States. But it's a big but. Again, the, the objection to the U.S. arming of the YPG, that Syrian Kurdish People's Protection Units, is almost universal across Turkey. The objection to U.S. sanctioning Turkey because of its purchase of the S-400 missile defense system is pretty strong across Turkey. There'd be a more of a willingness to work with the U.S., but there's a deep-seated anti-Americanism that is not just on kind of the conservative, pious Sunni Muslim right, but that's on the leftist, you know, pro-labor, social Democrat side when they remember the U.S. pushing Turkey to, you know, be tough on labor unions and so forth mm -hmm. um, during the Cold War with the Marshall Plan. And so there's still some grievances that are going to linger, but I think that the style and the professionalization of foreign policy would be different. And I think that there are some major differences that we would see. I think we would see a much more reinvigorated EU track that would still get stuck on things like Cyprus. But I think one of the biggest criticisms that the EU and its various institutions from the Commission to the European Court of Human Rights to other institutions, one of the biggest issues it's had with Turkey has been the de-democratization, the, the jailing of academics and journalists and civil society workers and, and all that. And I think that would substantially shift in a Kalistrolu-led opposition coalition. Now we can get, I mean, you, we don't want to, but you can get into all kinds of differences about, well, 
what if you have a, a parliamentary majority by the AKP and its coalition, and then you have a presidency who's of another party, like there could be gridlock, there could be all kinds of problems, I think, that we could run into. Coalitions can fall apart. We've seen that in Turkey frequently. The 90s was plagued by coalitions falling apart, which is one of the reasons that the electorate was willing to give the AKP an opportunity and that none of the parties who'd been in parliament prior to the 2002 elections, like none of them made it into the post-2002 parliament. So again, I think the de-democratization is going to be something that shifts and that that will help EU foreign policy, but there'll be some sticking points. And on regional diplomacy, particularly in the Middle East, do you foresee there to be much difference between a Kilic Doru administration or a post-election Erdogan administration in terms of how they approach various like regional alliances and entanglements in the Middle East? I think one of the biggest shifts is going to be the support of Hamas. And the support of Hamas by the AKP has obviously complicated relations with Israel. It's complicated relations with Saudi. It's complicated relations with UAE. In the past couple of years, the AKP has tried to preside over sort of a series of rapprochements with Saudi, with UAE, with Egypt, even with Syria, it looks like at this point, for different reasons. Like each of those rapprochements have some different reasons. But there was a point at which it was really like Turkey and Qatar and Hamas, and they were really regionally isolated. And then you had the Abraham Accords, which compounded that geopolitical isolation. And then you look at economic crisis on top of that, and you see that hmm, maybe we should soften things with Saudi and maybe we should soften things with UAE and ask for investment and, and you know financial stimulus and all that kind of stuff or credit swap lines. So there's been a recognition that the strong identity politics of we are aligning with Hamas and we are sort of lining against some of these major Arab countries in the region, when that ran up against an economic crisis, it saw a, a rollback of that. I would say that while the AKP has been presiding over some of these rapprochements, you'll probably see an easier time of it under uh, like a coalition-led government. And one of the reasons for that is that the Palestinian issue is something that resonates with a lot of Muslims, but it resonates particularly with Erdogan's coalition. He's sort of championed himself as protector of Palestinians. And there have been numerous attempted rapprochements with Israel, but every time Israel is attacking Muslims in the Al-Aqsa Mosque or carrying out you know, more settlement incursions, that's something that the AKP takes on very strongly. And it may not be the case that an opposition-led coalition would take on that particular issue, that issue of justice for Sunni Muslims, as strongly as the AKP did, which means that it might not derail any kind of future energy or security cooperation with Israel the way that it has for the AKP. Lastly, in the last minute, as we are headed towards this election on, on May 14th, is there anything you'll be looking towards that will sort of suggest to you how the election might unfold? Are there any key inflection points in the weeks ahead of the election? 
I would be looking to see if the AKP, in fact, does close the People's Democratic Party, the pro-Kurdish party, although at this point it doesn't really matter anymore. They've taken steps to run with another party, the Green Left Party. The People's Democratic Party, the pro-Kurdish party, has a history of, of having its institutions closed down and then kind of reopening under another name and maybe a slightly tweaked platform. And this particular iteration, the People's Democratic Party is a bigger tent party. It's not a Kurdish nationalist party. It's a sort of radical democracy, gender equality, environment, LGBTQ, like really progressive type of party. So I think I'll, I'll look for any kind of steps against them. On the Kurdish issue, I am really concerned about this. I'm really concerned about the AKP trying to fuel anti-Kurdish sentiment, I'll put it that way, such that the opposition's ability to claim that they're going to be able to sort of stay united and run in this, you know, kind of big tent coalition falls apart. I'm really concerned about violence. I'm really concerned about anti-Kurdish violence because we've seen that in the past in numerous elections. We saw it in 2015 when the AKP lost its parliamentary majority for the first time. And then they reignited the war with the PKK. They took a hard nationalist rhetorical and, and political turn aligning with the Nationalist Action Party, which is an ultra-nationalist anti-Kurdish party. And then they got their parliamentary majority back. So they have seen that that's a card that they can play. So I'll be watching for moves against Kurdish political actors for the use of the disinformation law or some of the other new laws that they've put in place to really constrict the political atmosphere. The main thing that I'm really worried about is violence in the Kurdish region. Because I think the AKP has seen in the past that that's been effective, and I worry that they're going to try and use that again. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash globaldispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.